Do you ever want to be a guest on a super cool podcast hosted by a glamorous power couple from their cutting-edge home studio on the outskirts of a major metropolitan world hub? Hollywood, anyone? Us, too. Until then, let's pretend. One of these days, you might get a DM, a PM, an EM, or even a message in a bottle inviting you to join my husband and I for an hour or two in our chat lab, working on solutions for all the world's problems. And when you are invited, there's only one response. Yeah, uh-huh. I have a great stake in this country. My wife and I have given nine hostages to fortune. Our children and your children are more important than anything else in the world. The kind of America that they and their children will inherit is of grave concern to us all. In the light of these considerations, I believe that Franklin D. Roosevelt should be re-elected President of the United States. I do remember okay. Mr. Leonard in high school spending two days you know, showing us that uh, Oswald was the assassin. And he says, I'm going to spend the next two days showing you that he wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was four days that week. Love that. Yeah. That is terrific. Mr. Leonard. Remind yeah. me of Hunter S. Thompson. There you go. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he had the same experiences in Las Vegas or whatever, but he yeah. just had the mannerisms and the way to speak and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to Yeah, Aha with Lisa. And Phil. This week, we have returning guest Will Cooper, who's a columnist and our favorite political expert. And also, of course, our great friend, Aaron, and frequent flyer from California. So welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Phil. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. We're kind of having a Kennedy month. This week, we're talking about his actual presidency, moving up to the pregnant presidency. We're not going to cover his unfortunate death or the conspiracies over much. These things may come up a bit, but mostly we're not going to address that in this episode. We do have an episode we already filmed or already recorded about a new book about the Texas situation by two college professors who interviewed people that were witnesses who were either never interviewed at the time of his death or were or their interviews were never released or considered of value. Thank you for coming to this episode. And let's get started about JFK. We have a timeline. Philip wanted to kind of give a little bit of background on Joe Kennedy. So, yeah, I'll go ahead and just, I, I think that Joe Kennedy, his personality set the tone for his sons in their political life. He was, Joe Kennedy was a man who was born in 1888 in Boston, Massachusetts, not to in a family of means, but became wealthy in large part due to his work in alcohol, the alcohol business. Bootlegging during Prohibition. Now, wait a minute. You're getting ahead of me here because uh-huh. the rumor and, and some of the things that uh, Kennedy's sons had to encounter all along was the malfeasance of their father and the rumor that he may have been a bootlegger. And in fact, mm-hmm. there were... Notable underworld figures like Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano and Bugsy Siegel that kind of implicated and and suggested that this was indeed how he accrued his wealth. But 
dis- yeah. disabuse us of the long-running canard that he was a bootlegger. I mean, he he made money off the liquor business, but he was not. It's no. not that he was a bootlegger. One of the great examples of American mythmaking. Mm-hmm. There were seven, eight FBI investigations of Joe Kennedy. Lots of stuff got into those FBI reports, but nothing about bootlegging. Mm-hmm. It is only in the late '60s and the early '70s when conspiracy theorists try to tie the assassination to the mob and then the mob to the Kennedy family that these rumors start to surface. But he did make money from uh, liquor, right? I mean, he, yeah, yeah, he anticipated the end of Prohibition. Look, the and, guy is yeah. a brilliant, brilliant, yeah. brilliant businessman. Mm-hmm. He knows, number one, that as soon as Roosevelt's inaugurated, Prohibition is ending. Number two, that you can make gin overnight in New Jersey, but fine scotch, which Americans have always had a taste for, has to come from Britain, has to be imported. As soon as the election's over, he gathers up Jimmy Roosevelt, president's son, goes to Britain, makes a deal with the top distiller to import exclusively the best American scotch, sets up Somerset importers, which brings in, I mean, it's a cash cow for the family mm. until Jack runs for office, and then they he's got to get out. That, along with the fact that the family was Catholic, these were things that JFK's and Robert Kennedy's political opponents pounced on and sort of haunted them throughout the course of their political life. So I think that it's inter- you know it's important to bring that, you know, Mm-hmm. That kind of set the tone. Yeah. But so JFK, he built his own legacy, of course. And he was a Harvard graduate, mm-hmm. captain of the swim team. He was an ambitious and intelligent man. Right. Mm-hmm. And, well, what do you think? I mean, in, in setting his own tone and to try to, you know, I guess it's a sensitive topic to kind of separate himself from that, the, the, the baggage of his family name, how did how did Kennedy go about kind of setting his own tone or creating his own legacy? How did he jump those hurdles? It's a great it's a great question, a great background, Phil and, and Lisa. I think one thing that always resonated with me was the way that that JFK and of course his brother Bobby Kennedy so ferociously went after organized crime from the government. And they did so not just sort of methodically and and in a in a real serious way, they did so in a very public way. Mm-hmm. And so in some in some respects it may have been point scoring politically, but it may have been something that was a good way for them to raise their profiles. You know, this was when Kennedy was in Congress, when before his presidency, before Bobby was elevated to attorney general under under JFK, they had already started this this process. And I think it's hard to, for me at least, and I would love to hear the group's thoughts, but it's hard to imagine that that didn't have at least a meaningful part of that wasn't to send a message, whatever you think about my father, whatever's true and whatever, whatever's false, mm-hmm. let us be very clear. We are not aligned with organized crime. We are on the exact opposite side of the, the continuum. Right. And that is Which, probably... You all think of that? Yeah, that's probably a, a smart move in some ways, well, but th- maybe it backfired. RFK 
the ferocity that he went after these underworld figures as the attorney general, as JFK's attorney general, I feel like that probably may have been born from uh, a chip on his, his shoulder or a desire to disprove the, the rumors or to clear his father's name. To separate in ways oh, separate well, to him separate from, him yeah. and his brother politically from their right. the rumors. Yeah, there's, absolutely. There's yeah. parallels drawn today with uh, marijuana. You look at like John Boehner; he's all of a sudden, you know, pro cannabis and a heavy investor <laughs> in the industry, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Got to follow the money. Mm-hmm. He trade in his his cigarettes for uh, joints. Is that what's going on? Yeah, <laughs> that's what's right. going on. I remember Boehner and Obama used to, as part of their bonding, back when opposing parties would actually speak to each other just a few years mm-hmm. ago. Right, the smoke breaks. Smoke cigarettes <laughs> together. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think the, the thing that's weird to me is that somehow, somehow uh, the, the impression became that uh, Kennedy must have been receptive to this sort of relationship with the underworld. Because, and by that do you mean John or Joe? I'm talking about John. Okay. Uh, because okay, JFK. I'll, I'll use the example. By underworld, which particular aspect do you mean? Well, I'm going to say the mafia. Okay. Okay. They did contribute so, to his campaign, uh, and he spent quite a bit of time with the Rat Pack in Newport, well, Kentucky, yeah. when it was a gambling mecca. Well, I am. Um, I watched the Jimmy Hoffa episode of Dick Cavett a few weeks ago. Too. Yeah. <laughs> um, was pretty interesting oh, thing. Yeah, um, we should, well, yeah. there was a blood feud there between JFK yeah, and the Kennedys. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. But, um, well, I guess the Kennedys won. I haven't spent enough time on this particular strand to separate fact from fiction, and of course, with JFK, there's a lot of both. But I've also I've heard that there was, in addition to those things, there was also an effort sort of an, an allegiance between the Kennedy administration and the mafia to try to go after Castro. All happening at the same time as the others. Have any of you heard of that and, and know whether that was true? or just I've heard those that? same kind of rumors over the years, but I don't know anything that yeah. could substantiate them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does. If you, if you apply the common sense rule, it makes sense. Because I'm sure the mafia was pissed off at Castro for kicking them out. I think there's a lot of backroom dealing in politics and in crime, all cross, you know, all cross both, you know, specters huh? back then. Not that it doesn't go on today. Oh yeah. But people entertained probably personalities back then that uh, mm. would be absolutely toxic today. I wonder if right. getting kicked out of Cuba helped open up Las Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. But when I think about Sinatra, I think about Frank Sinatra in particular, and it's been well documented in films. Sinatra was a friend of Sam Giancana, which is the biggest Don at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was also friends with JFK and a backer of JFK. And he really entertained this notion. He made no, Sinatra made no uh, bones about it. He did have these friends in the mafia and, and he, he seemed to work effortlessly to try to bring Mm-hmm. You know, JFK together with these underworld figures. And there was even a a situation where he introduced Lady of the Evening to both JFK and Sam Giancana. Judith Campbell? Yes. Judith Campbell, yes. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, JFK was kind of careless or reckless, I guess, in, in keeping that relationship going. And, but eventually I think Bobby stepped in and kind of told him he needed to sever that relationship. So I, I feel like JFK left to his own devices may not have been so concerned about that legacy and, and kind of boldly proceeded. And it felt like he would find his own path, but. Because when it comes to philandering, he didn't have a whole lot of. Yeah. Yeah. He, he wasn't uh, kind towards his lovely wife. Yeah. And there was another situation where JFK was supposed to say, stay at Sinatra's vacation home and was dissuaded at the last minute because it wasn't a good look. And that also probably came from Bobby that, that, that Sinatra was now one of those toxic figures that he needed to kind of steer clear from. Step back a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when you think about politics, these celebrity endorsements kind of have continued, you know, they're great point of controversy with people on both sides of the aisle, these celebrity relationships, that Sinatra thing, the Rat Pack thing with, with JFK, that was sort of the beginning of that kind of modern president or television. Elvis and Nixon. Yeah. Elvis and Nixon. Yeah. The modern television presidency is it's a, it's so deeply ingrained in politics today that it's hard to imagine that there were elections and a political ecosystem that didn't involve television because it's just so central. And I know that Phil, I know you've studied this and I, I remember studying it when I was uh, in undergrad as well, that the Kennedy Nixon debate for the 1960 presidency and how, how that was considered sort of the first key presidential debate on television. And that a lot of the scholarship people that studied it in political circles and and, and in, in the academy all all came to the conclusion, at least the, the the preponderance of the views were, if you were to have read a transcript, you would have mm-hmm. thought Nixon did better. You would have thought right. his wor- his words were more articulate, his his views more substantive. Mm-hmm. But on television, Kennedy was this young, strapping, confident, good-looking guy, and yeah. Nixon was sweaty and awkward and had a kind of weird demeanor and look on his face and the American people were strongly in favor of Kennedy. And it just highlights what I think we still see today. Incredibly very distinctive speech patterns, Nixon and Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah. Very distinct. But I'll tell you based on that, based on that debate, that is why my mother-in-law voted uh, Democrat for the first and only time (laughs) for president. Interesting. Because oh, yeah. she didn't want to look at Nixon for four years, <laughs> literally. <laughs> she got well, and it also just goes to show that personality and the things that a huge percentage of voters are attracted to mm-hmm. is not substance. It's not what's the legislation going to be, what's the policy going to be. We certainly saw that with with the last president, who was not mm-hmm. put up mildly, not a policy wonk, wonk Donald Trump, but he yeah. his personality, his demeanor, his 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 TV celebrity captured a lot of people's attention. And, and the seeds of that, I think, to some extent, started in, in 1960 with Kennedy. How it's not the consequences of them being elected from a policy standpoint. It's their personality. It's what they look like that that for millions and millions of voters really matters. Perception. Yeah. Perception matters. It's what they look like 
on the debates and it's uh, what issue are you mad about at the time? Yeah. 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 Well, there, there's a quote. Eisenhower, of course, was uh, in office and Nixon was uh, on the Republican ticket. And at the time, a famous quote at the time and probably I think it was after the debate, but I don't think it really matters given the nature of the quote. He was asked what he would say to endorse Richard Nixon as uh, the president. And he said, I don't know, but if you give me a week, I'll come up with something. I just wondered if you could give us an example of a major idea of his that you had adopted in that role as the, as the decider and, uh, and final. Uh... If you give me a week, I might think of one. I don't remember. Because... <laughs> <laughs> and that also <laughs> was a pretty. That probably didn't help. That was a shot across the bow of Nixon's you know, chances in that election mm-hmm. as well. He you just know, was not a wasn't well liked by anyone, really. Yeah. yeah, and even when he won the presidency, it was sort. It seemed a little bit like cronyism, like it was his turn, right? That's a good point. Um, one one of the things about that election too that is fascinating is to go back to Phil, what you started with the mafia connections with Kennedy. Among the conspiracy theories about JFK is, and I, this one may actually be true. I don't, it's hard. It's hard to know, and I don't know if, if it's conclusive either way. Is that he won Chicago by just a few thousand votes and therefore won Illinois by just a few thousand votes and therefore won the presidency. And there was, there's a lot of rumor that it was the Chicago mafia that gave him that election. Any of you looked into that and know whether there's a there there? The Chicago political machine has been notorious for, you know, long yeah. before the Kennedy right. election. So, I mean, there's probably something there. You know, no more than any other election, I wouldn't think. Yeah. I think it was just fertile ground for all kinds of these uh, possibilities. That time was just a very strange time. A lot of moving parts, a lot of shady characters, a lot of backroom deals. Didn't Chicago have a lot of politicians who, like, adopted the title boss (laughs) over the years? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, Cincinnati had a boss. They did. I I can't think of any of their names now. And and he was definitely corrupt. So you yeah, know. if your name was Boss, you were corrupt. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's quite. That's definitely an indicator of corruption. That's for sure. Like being yeah. a cowboy and calling yourself Dirty Dan or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Johnny Ringo. <laughs> you know, Here comes the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we're talking about this like he just blew Nixon out of the water, like it was just a landslide victory or something, but it wasn't. I mean, when Kennedy... Uh, he wasn't expected to beat Nixon, though, I don't think, either. Mm. No, but the, but in, hind- in hindsight, I'm saying, you know, just in hindsight, it's like it, all these things that, that really worked in Kennedy's favor, he still barely eked out a win. In fact, when he was, when he was uh, accepting the presidency on the night of his election, he actually looked at the room of 5,500 people and said, if every single one of you had voted against me, I would have lost the election. 5,500 people. So that's how close it was. Um, if they were all in the same city. Well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Granted. But I think. The same specific city. Right. Mm-hmm. He's just talking sheer numbers. Though. You know, the, the, the balance, it was very, very close. Less than 6,000, you know, well-placed votes. <laughs> yeah. But. Now. Um, I do do have a question that pertains to this that I find 
Interesting. And it kind of harkens back to that good old days vibe. I feel like the media knew all of the, the philandering and some of the back door deals and things like that. They knew about some of this stuff and they purposely did not put it out there because maybe, well, first of all, it was, it might be like baseball players. They just never, they didn't report it because the public didn't want to know. Right. Right. Exactly. So, and they decided the public didn't want to know in my opinion. So that speaks back to the whole, where do you, as a, as a media person, a journalist will, published in columns where do you weigh on in on that do you feel the the rabidity of let's get this out there i mean okay quite honestly did clinton's affair with monica Lewinsky really affect anything politically that kind of you know do we need to report things that are politically nothing when it comes to like things like the president because i I speak to this because when we got married, I was like, you know, if, if you're ever president, you can cheat on me because, damn, being president sexy, <laughs> except for Nixon. <laughs> but I don't know, Phil, you've got my vote if you ever run. <laughs> All right. Thank yeah. you, Will. <laughs> no, I think I think oh, Lisa, the, the media has evol- evolved very dramatically since the mm-hmm. time of Kennedy. And you can even date it back further. For example, FDR, they were very hesitant to ever film him in a wheelchair. Right. All of his pictures were, you know, when he was behind the podium and the press was very respectful. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the modern media has radically transformed from that that age. And now you have... It's almost just, gotcha-ism. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a never-ending onslaught of gotcha-ism and, mm-hmm. and frankly, a huge mix of of accurate information and misinformation right. and opinion masquerading as news. So now you can't get away with what you used to before. Anything that's out there in the world that a journalist finds out about is going to be tweeted about almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. It's not safe for the, you know, the, the following morning headline. But, but back in the day, the, I think the, the, the media was, was more respectful but they were also there was a lot. I think there was a lot less misinformation and a lot less gotchaism as well. Today, however, you, you uncover a lot more too. I mean, Woodward and Bernstein, fifteen years later, or I guess maybe more like ten years later, uh, mm-hmm. were part of a, a cultural shift in the media. I think where they they exposed Nixon in an important way. And if that had happened in 1952 under Eisenhower, you know, a less vigorous press might not have done that. So I think you get pluses and minuses. I think there was a less, there was a, there was not a fully developed appreciation for the power of television or the new media yet. So people would still observe these old courtesies. Uh, We don't want to report FDRs. It's uh, a great word. Courtesies. Those, those do not exist anymore. I mean, individual reporters may or may not be courteous in various times, but you will never, ever, I can't fathom a scenario where you're going to get all of the press to, to back away from something out of courtesy for a politician. I just think that's long, long gone. And then honestly, I think leading up to being the president, you know, more knowledge is better. Like, for instance, I, although like uh, Hart, 
I could care less about what he was doing sexually on the way to becoming the president. Okay. I didn't care. That was between him and his wife. Just like, you know, Monica Lewinsky to me was between the president and his wife. Okay. I don't see how that other than the fact that he supposedly disrespected the Oval Office, but quite frankly, if I was president, was lying about the Monica Lewinsky thing. Yeah, but but yeah, but nobody thought he had integrity in that respect. (laughs) Did they? I want a president who can lie. If he just said yes, then they couldn't. I don't want a. I don't want a insane president who's not even sure what he's telling and whether it's a lie or not because he's convinced himself it's true well that was the last one right but that was the uh, orange juice (laughs) (laughs) well it has a t-shirt that's got uh white milk chocolate milk and orange juice on it (laughs) yeah yeah that that, so i think the uh the thing is the right will or the, the, the moral right We'll come up with many reasons why JFK, Gary Hart, Bill Clinton mm-hmm. are uh, unfit for, right. to, to be president because of their promiscuity uh-huh. and their uh, lack of integrity, so you know, so-called mm-hmm. integrity. But when you dig into JFK's history, the history of the, you know his biography, he was a war he was a war hero. You know he had you know he had he had issues. You know, he had problems, you know, being faithful to his wife, apparently, and stuff like that. But he was also a man of integrity who adhered to uh, a great deal. Of, he had a code. Uh, he had a code, right. Beyond the fact that he cheated on his wife left and right. And and big, the big, biggest mm-hmm. example of that was probably when he was the commander of PT-109, a movie. PT-109 is the creation story of America's most admired modern president. It is the story of a life and death series of events that shaped his presidency in critical ways. This is a man who who loses his boat in a fluke accidental collision with a boat three or four times bigger than his own. He now has 10 men scattered all across the surface of the open ocean in the middle of the night at 2.30 in the morning, swimming in pockets of flaming gasoline, with no food, no water, no way of summoning rescue, and with the Americans nearby taking off because they assumed that the boat had blown up and that everybody was dead. So this is about as dangerous a predicament as a young officer can be put into. PT-109 was used by John Kennedy as the critical foundation of his running for office. It proved that Kennedy was a war hero who could lead under stress, and under fire. Uh, uh, an There's event a movie. It was made move, uh, made famous by a movie PT 109 that I have never seen actually. But the mm-hmm. we're the, gonna have to see that. You know, the event was uh, during World War II at the Battle of Blackett Strait. Kennedy's PT boat was was actually under attack by a Japanese destroyer named Amagiri. And it was tor- hit with a torpedo. It was hit, hit with a torpedo, and, and eventually the Amagiri collided with JFK's uh, with that with PT one hundred nine. It was destroyed. The rest of the uh, Allied convoy retreated. Did not attempt to make any rescues. They, they pretty much wrote the boat off as a sunken ship. And you know Kennedy's college days swimming. He was able to swim. You know tugging a man on his back for. Four miles, four four hour swim to 
the first island in a series of islands, uh, you know, and eventually 11 of the like 15 men that had been on that ship were actually saved. So it's not like, it's not, you know, there's a thin line. I mean, do you want a man that's, that's going to be beside you in a foxhole or some man, or, or, or do you want someone that uh, you're not, you're, you don't want to leave your wife alone with in a room? <laughs> it's like, who do you want? <laughs> JFK to be embodied both. Yeah. I mean, who, who do you want to be present? Do you want to have someone yeah. with the. Allies are mutually exclusive. Well, true. Right. But that's, that's I true. mean, JFK embodied both. So, but, but still. But just, you know, the, the moral. The moral profile of the man that's painted a lot of times mm-hmm. doesn't do justice to, to his, his attributes. Right. There's a there, those these things can be separated. Right. Yeah. I think JFK undoubtedly had lots of strengths and talents that were unusual and very positive, and and he was mm-hmm. a very smart man. And the way I, it's a great question about about that morality and, and what you want in a president. One of the one of the things that I think about is that I think is relevant is the risk taking involved in some of the examples. Some Mm -hmm. of some presidents, JFK, Bill Clinton, they took incredible risks Mm -hmm. as part of their infidelities. Um, Bill Clinton, obvious example, an intern in the Oval Office a number of times. That's just a risky thing to do in general. And to have that be part of your DNA, that you would take those sorts of risks. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question of how does that impact whether you should be the, the person in charge of the nuclear code, right? Right. If you're, you're, yeah. if you're a risk taker. So in, in, my, in, my, in my view, it's not just a question of morality. Okay. What really matters in a presidency is are you going to do a good job for the right. people? Or is your decision making going to be sound? Mm-hmm. So the most relevant part in some ways for me is, is that risk taking a sign of, of the type of mind that we want to be making decisions. As far as JFK goes, while he did take very big risks, he also handled the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is one of the most sensitive things that have ever happened in our country's history in an incredibly sober, rational way. So I think he was able to separate out risk taking in his personal life. Right. With, thinking things through the right way as a president. Hello? Yes, please. Oh, the general on the I'll put it on, yes, sir. Ready? Hello? General, how are you? Oh, fine. General, I just wanted to bring you up to date on this uh, matter because I know of your concern about it. We got, uh, Friday night, got a message from uh, Khrushchev which uh, said that uh, he would uh, withdraw these missiles and technicians and so on, providing we did not plan to invade Cuba. We uh, then got a message, uh, that public one, the next morning in which he said he would do that if we withdrew our missiles from Turkey. We uh, then, as you know, uh, issued a statement that uh, we couldn't get into that deal. So uh, we then got this message this morning. So we're now... uh, have to wait to see how it unfolds, and there's a good deal of complexities to it. Uh, if the uh, the withdrawal of these missiles, technicians, and the cessation of uh, subversive activity by them, well, we just have to set up satisfactory procedures to determine whether these actions will be carried out. So I would think that uh, if we can do that, we'll be uh, find our interests advanced. 
even though it may be only one more chapter in a rather long story as far as Cuba's concerned. Of course, but uh, Mr. President, did he uh, put any conditions on whatsoever in that? No, except uh, that uh, we're not going to invade Cuba. Yeah. That's the only one we've got uh, now. But we don't plan to invade Cuba under these conditions anyway. But yeah, so does like this risk-taking speak to impulse control, or does it speak to something specific, a form of excitement, maybe even a release, so to great, speak? Great point. Yeah, great way to put it. Mm-hmm. Well, even mm-hmm. during this uh, PT-109 event, and the name of the movie is PT-109, Cliff Robertson actually plays JFK in that movie, just for your information. But they were they were found in part, or they were their rescue was expedited, at least because he was resourceful enough to scratch codes onto coconut shells that were found in his wake on these islands. Things that he talked about later, like the space program and the Peace Corps, he would always stress in his language the difficulties that his initiatives would would you know would involve that was always a theme of his and and you get a feeling that you know that the events like the PT109 or whatever mm-hmm. kind of shaped his mind that, that way that right. and you know we go there we go into space not because it's easy because it's hard you know and i mean that yeah to me there there's a difference between the type of person who runs towards the danger which I think JFK was a type of person who ran a first responder at heart versus like someone who wants to take advantage of it, I guess. But it's still a exploitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's still an exploitive, maybe. Well, not, no, not exploitive. You know, there's, yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. But yeah, I mean, JFK in particular was a first responder at heart. He was going to be there for the crisis, he was going to be calm in the crisis. But during those times when he didn't have crisis, I think he needed a little more excitement. You mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was probably the most, the highest profile crisis or dilemma crisis that he, that the world actually confronted during his administration. I think it was 13 days in which, you know, people across the world woke up not knowing whether or not nuclear war would be uh, actually going on. Yeah. and And I do have one question on that. Does anybody know when they stopped trying to pretend that if you got under your desk, you might survive a nuclear war? Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were still telling us to do that when I was in the fifth grade. Did you have to do that? Here in Ohio. Did they have drills like that in your classroom? I don't think I did. Did you? Uh, I mean, you would, yeah, yeah, in elementary school? That's what school? I'm getting at, yeah, in okay. elementary school. Because they were doing it at Green Hills. We did it in the fourth and fifth grade in Green Hills. Yeah. So did you go I, to Green Hills when you were I did, and there? I did not. Something I, you I did don't go know to Green Hills. Is, I didn't have a... Uh, after, we we lived at a house, in a house in Green Hills, Ohio. And immediately after we moved out, Aaron's family moved in. So isn't that interesting? Figured that out years later. Yeah, yeah. at our wedding. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you knew each other and then independently realized you well, we didn't know each other. I, I knew Phil. <laughs> and then they moved in. We moved. We were gone. A friend yeah. of her brother's came around looking for her brother. Yeah. One day. And, I, you know, she's mentioned his name. I'm like, wait a minute. Did you guys live at this address? And that was, bizarre. That was it. It was our I know. Isn't that interesting that that, you know, Aaron's Philip's best friend and you know, he's at our wedding, and it turns out we lived in the same house for a few years. I mean, that's different times. Yeah. That's but, great. yeah, 
So that's great. But the, I know, right? literally the alarm would go off and you were to get on your hands and knees and crawl under your desk mm-hmm. so that when the nuclear strike hit, it might not. It would know, protect it might not, you. The radiation might now, not reach you. Did you go through any of that, and, Will? No, I was in Northern California. I was in mm-hmm. um, elementary school in the late eighties, early nineties, and we would. Oh, go, okay. We would. So get it stopped under. before the eighties, probably. Oh yeah, it stopped before I got out of grade school. Yeah. We would. We would though practice getting under our desk because of our location in Northern California mm-hmm. for earthquakes. Yeah. yeah. So do, fortunately, do you feel- we were. We were uh-huh. spared the. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Do you feel that your desk would have kept you alive in an earthquake? Well, contrary to nuclear, you know, war where everything uh-huh. you know, just completely blows up all at once, and it's laughable to get under your desk when there's right. an earthquake, particularly a, a you know big range of quakes where things can fall from shelves and the ceiling, okay, so, things like that. It yeah. actually does make there's some physics there that the desk can protect you from flying bases and things of that nature. So there was some logic to it. Yeah. And then this probably happened later for me because I was a little older. No drills and fire drills, no nuclear drills at Lakeside Elementary. Yeah. Let me give you a little more color commentary to this whole scenario. You're under your desk and your teacher is Miss Poland and she resembles Joan Crawford. So imagine, you know, with complete with the hair and the red lips and the paste, you know, very nice woman, but she would put the fear of God in you while you were under the desk. She would say, now when the new mommy dearests. Yeah. Yeah. She would, she would wait outside for her bus after school every day inside a doorway with her arms crossed in front of her with her purse hanging down there, looking as though she were, laying back into her coffin for the evening, but uh, <laughs> just to give you an idea of the yeah. things Philip thinks. So, but anyway, she, she, she would put the fear of God in you during this drill. She was saying, well, at this point you'd be seeing a flashpoint and then you, and the mushroom cloud would start and then there'd be this rust. Oh, and uh, you have to wonder if that was part of the applied criteria because I didn't get that. But no, that's part, <laughs> see, that's part yeah. of, that's what, that's the. End. I think that was part of That's her. the tail end of the legacy of mm-hmm. the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cold yeah. War, the beginnings of the Cold War. It was prevalent still in 1974, mm-hmm. 75. But the Cuban. You, that, that the United States navigating through the Cold War and then giving the conclusion that we did was skill or luck or a mix? Um, I don't know. Aaron, what do you think? Uh, I think the string just played out on uh, Russia's, on the USSR's. Uh, it wasn't sustainable. They were trying to empire build. I think for you, can't, one thing. you can't suppress the people forever. Yeah. Especially not when the people, I think, you know, media, in a sense, the increasing ability to see what else there is out there killed Russia as much as their empire building. It was a combination of all those things. You know, they were still doing the Roman thing of empire building. Whereas America. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. But what do you think, Will? I think, I think that that's right. I think Russia's system inherently was only going to grow to be so strong and only going to last so long. And I think that's right. I think it was probably more, I don't think the United States strategy was better was necessarily <laughs> bad but it 
but I think it had more to do with our, our the differences in our systems. Yeah. And it makes the, the growing rivalry with China all the more interesting because China has a, a much, I think a much stronger inherent structure and, and, and inherent potential mm-hmm. to grow and continue growing compared to, to Russia's. Yeah. It's right. obviously different in a lot of ways, but it's, Yeah, I mean, now they have control of Japan, but that's a treaty situation. They didn't, like, invade. Mm -hmm. One of the big big events leading up to the Cuban Cuban Missile Crisis was the Bay of Pigs. And JFK kind of inherited that. Eisenhower had a plan, or the CIA under Eisenhower had a plan to turn anti-Castro Cubans against the, the new dictator. He had been in power for about two years. And the United States was concerned about the expansion of communism. They were definitely in bed with the Soviet Union. And they, they, they gathered about 1,500 anti-Castro troops. There was a man named Jose Miro that would have been the new leader of Cuba had it been successful. It was sort of a ill-conceived plan from the beginning on the, the night of the attack they attacked a very sparsely populated, swampy area of Cuba. The initial bombing raids were not successful in taking out very many troops. And the, when the landing party got to shore, they were cut down pretty, you know, summarily cut down. And then that gave Castro time to reinforce his troops and push them off the island. It was a complete disaster. So that's one of the big events that kind of, you know, preceded the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then in the Cuban Missile Crisis, our reconnaissance planes noticed that 80 miles off the shore of Florida, that they were able to spot missile silos in the... Uh, Ocean? No. Oh. No. No? In oh. Cuba. Oh, okay. And reported it back to... Well, I thought they were underwater. No. Okay. They were on trucks, actually. And they were, you know, they tried to conceal them under branches and uh, foliage and things like that. Okay. I just have a picture in my head and I'm going to laugh now. (laughs) Well, you're thinking of the Batman movie where the thing, you know, comes shooting out of the ocean and, you know, (laughs) with the Joker on the back of it. And uh, when JFK caught wind of that, negotiations began with Khrushchev. They didn't go well at first. The uh, Soviets wanted us to remove some of our missiles that were within range of his country. It became kind of a pissing contest. Uh, Americans were scared to death that they would mm-hmm. go to bed and not wake up the next day. They felt the same in Russia, I'm sure, or Soviet mm-hmm. Union. Well, as much as they were told. Right. Yeah. But eventually they came to an agreement, and we withdrew ours, and they re- withdrew theirs. And... Uh, Probably some of it was a lie. I I think it was a tough time for for Americans to go through, but I think in the long run, it was probably a great lesson that may have prevented something from actually happening down the road. But my aunt, I remember sitting around this, we had a round table at home where my, my, my dad and my aunt would sit around and just swap stories and needle each other. And it was Good yeah, it was like a weekend, in, in, you know, mm-hmm. convergence. And I remember her saying that, in her opinion, if Kennedy had been able to live out his presidency, that she's she's convinced we would have been embroiled in the thermonuclear war. So, mm. did she think he was belligerent or stupid, or what was the reasoning for? 
probably yeah. stupid. She was uh, pretty sure she would own a MAGA hat if she was alive today. I would not necessarily no. agree with that. She liked no. Kennedy. I think she said she voted for him. Mm-hmm. But speaking back to what you were talking about before, I think she was trying to say that she thought that he was careless or too, not careless, but too thought- eager to go into the fight, you know, too Fire. reckless. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. Well, my sense, and I haven't studied it closely, is that Kennedy and his administration and all the all the people involved handled that in a in a pretty thoughtful and sober, rational way, and obviously got the result that we wanted of of staving off a confrontation. And then you compare that to, for example, four years ago, the president of the United States was tweeting, "Little Rocket Man, we uh-huh. will, we will blow you up." You're an absolutely um, insane idiot. <laughs> yeah, and now Trump Trump is an outlier, but but the historical record seems to have have endorsed Kennedy's somewhat cautious, very thoughtful approach that does, does, do you all agree with that or, or. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think? The rocket man thing. They were insane on both ends of that. But oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, the whole definitely. world was just sitting there watching these two right. insane people with all these weapons. So. With access to Twitter and, and a red button. Ooh. And honestly though, I wasn't even, I didn't even let myself be frightened by this for the simple reason that, you know what? It is what it is. Crazy's in charge. And well, why don't we go ahead? Yeah. Let's take a short break to uh, honor our sponsors. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. I I want to kind of pull in your expertise a little bit to it in the second half. Mm -hmm. We talk a little bit about his domestic stuff, but I kind of want to talk about, you know, what would JFK, if we had, if JFK were transposed to our time, they had to deal with our problems. Yeah. Um, So let's... What do you think? With that. Yeah, what, what do you think? Do you like it? Would he? Would he? Let's start with this. Would he would have been he elected? Be? <laughs> well, yeah, is he electable? Yeah, <laughs> I think um, he'd be a good. Um, I mean, it's a very low bar to get over these days, but yeah. I think he'd be a very good addition as an elected official. He's got. Yeah. He was a serious policy wonk. He was a war hero, as you noted, Phil. He wrote a, a very well-regarded book. So, you know, he's very thoughtful, articulate. I think despite his personal indiscretions, my sense is he had the right goals for the country and, and a, a good faith desire to, to help the country. And, and too much of today's politics is all about, you know, self-interest of the politicians or narrow focus on particular interest groups or, or, 
mm-hmm. a narrow slice of a political party. And, and to me, somebody like JFK, and, and there may be some romanticizing the past here, but I do think his, <clears throat> he was more focused on doing what was right for the country, what you see with far too many politicians today, where it's all about the, you know, the next soundbite, the next, the next election, the next gotcha opportunity. Yeah. So, so I would certainly love thing about this question is if, if Kennedy was in this time, then there wouldn't have been a Kennedy in Kennedy's time to, to have built the model from. So <laughs> the whole game might be different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So, and, and Kennedy had the mod, the modern, combination for today not always the case but a lot of it is like you want to have the telegenic face and personality combined Uh with the political acumen to to utilize it kennedy definitely had that so i think you i think you would have done well in today's politics but but again when you're when you're in the minor leagues it's easier to hit a home run than when you're in the pros these days there's a lot of minor leaguers out there so Yeah, elected ones. Exactly. Would, is, would yeah. you think that he'd be more progressive or more of a mm-hmm. moderate Democrat in his climate? My sense of Kennedy was he was pretty darn centrist and and so I think somewhat of a Bill Clinton esque Democrat where he would he would have done a lot of things that inflamed the liberal side of the mm-hmm. of his of his party and but ultimately would have would you know would have been a democrat certainly not a republican in the modern form more more of a more a common sense kind of a thing maybe yeah fact oriented common sense and i personally i like that, that yeah that brand i think he i think he would have fit in there and and he would have so he would have been i think my sense and i i don't know what the group thinks but somewhat of a i think bill clinton may have even modeled his Approach oh, absolutely. After JFK. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that analogy. I, and I don't think he ever tried to do the, you know, I've been compared to, did he, who was that that was in the debate and the president said, I the vice presidential debate, Dan Quayle, was it? Oh, yes. Was Benson? That yeah. Miss? Right. Benson told Quayle, I, I knew, knew Jack, Kenny, Jack Kennedy, you're no Jack Kennedy. Yeah. John F. Kennedy had been gone for 25 years when he played an unforgettable role in this vice presidential debate. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, no. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like uh, the reaching across the aisle, the ability mm-hmm. to appeal to both, you know, bipartisan, to gain bipartisan support. Um, that's <clears throat> something that Clinton, how do we feel about him? JFK may have, you know, it's kind of in the same mold. Uh, but as far as his domestic accomplishments, we've talked about his international um, career as president. His main, maybe his biggest uh, domestic accomplishment may have been the Civil Rights Bill, which was not um, ratified until after he died. <laughs> but I, I'm going to have to throw in the Peace Corps here. And the Peace Corps. Because, wow. Yeah. You know? But the thing is, yeah. he, he drew some heat from some civil rights leaders mm-hmm. for not doing quite enough for yeah. the civil rights movement, for mm-hmm. trying to enforce existing laws, mm-hmm. which is noble, but not trying to 
create new and better ones. Yeah. Hmm. And yeah, I think that that's kind of, that kind of goes back to what you were saying about drawing heat from within his own party. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of distance between the left, the progressive wing of the Democrats today and JFK mm-hmm. and that mold. Yeah. Of old school. I mean, those are very, JFK, I think it was much more of a Joe Manchin than an, uh, than an AOC. I mean, he, so oh yeah. Well, was, and, yeah. For, for me, the difference can be kind of described in this way. Woohoo, I'm a politician and my wife wears pants versus, yeah, I don't control her. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, up. do you think that's too far out of the... I, like think, I, think it, I think it makes it makes great sense, and and I find it, you know, it is fascinating how just the way the political parties are shaped today. Mm-hmm. You've got you've got on both sides, right? On Democrats, you've got centrists who are concerned about inflation and the budget and national security, and they're Democrats, and then you've got in the same party people who consider all of those things just getting in the way of, of, of making really bold legislation in climate areas and, and the social net fabric and all of that. And then on the Republican side, you've got fact oriented sort of principled conservatives like, you know, Mitt Romney, and then mm-hmm. just in the same party, you know, rabid MAGA Trumpist mm-hmm. election denier, you know, and, yeah. and, I don't know. Is that how long that's going to last? I don't know what what that what the, yeah. the next phase is. Do we do we well? Do he we is still third party, or do we have some sort of harmony? Because mm-hmm. there's just unbelievable differences within both parties these days. Yeah, fractures. But I mean, okay, we've got like it's it's clear that there are three groups with the Republicans. Are the Democrats divided by three, or are they more like half and half? Divided by twelve. <laughs> oh yeah yeah okay the number of candidates i think yeah. you could draw a lot of different lines depending on how granular you want to be right depending on you know what level of generality you're talking but mm-hmm. however many groups there are if you look at the center of uh the political aisle on the democratic side and you compare it to mm-hmm. the left they, they they just there's very very little overlap there which is okay Interesting. So I mean, that's, that's all the way across the board. Yeah. Yeah. There's much more. Joe Manchin has much more in common, I think, with, uh-huh. with a centrist Republican mm-hmm. than he does with members of his own party who are far to the left. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Huh. It's interesting how things are. He is basically a centrist oh, Republican. He is. Mm-hmm. He is. Yeah. That's the problem with the Democrats right now is one of their. Number is a centrist Republican. Yeah. And just one? Clogging up the work. You're 50 50. Yeah. You, can't, you can't have that. Well, yeah. And then, you know, I think that one of the things that we need to do is rise up and get congressional term limits in place because they just get too much power. I mean, Mitch McConnell's been at the center of American politics since the 80s. Just every, right. every issue, every everything that's come up since the yeah. 80s, there's been Mitch. It's really I'm, I'm able to retire this year from my job. I've been there for over 30 years, and he's still in Congress. He was on the ballot the first time I voted at 18. 
Arguably more power so, than yeah. any president. Right. <laughs> Cong- Congress has more power than the president mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Well, overall. Know, shut in down my everything. Yeah, you block more legislation than you can shake a pen at. And then you've got the Supreme Court, which has a different problem, but similar in the sense that the court, the justices themselves are reposed with the decision making of how long they stay. If they get life tenure. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the purpose of that is great. It insulates them from political influence. But if you take it too far, the consequences can be incredible. And uh, mm-hmm. well, I'm a huge admirer of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in many ways. I think she was Mm -hmm. one of the greatest lawyers and judges to ever live in this country Mm -hmm. and and her career is spectacular. By not retiring when Obama was president, she was well into her 80s. Right. That led to Amy Coma Barrett being a justice. Mm -hmm. The consequences are immense and they may, within the next few months even, we may have Mm -hmm an opinion on abortion that radically transforms the legal landscape and is completely different from what RBG would have done. And here Mm -hmm. we have, you know, right in the face of those consequences, so dramatic, Justice Breyer, well into his 80s, may or may not retire before the the next presidential election. So the, the point you make, Lisa, about politicians being there too long is mm-hmm. very important and it applies to judges too. I mean, the consequences right. are enormous. Yeah, but then, do you, you know, think that on the I other mean, hand, Ruth Bader Ginsburg yeah. wasn't letting politics factor in her into her decision on whether to retire? You could look at it that way, but it would have been better if she had retired during the. I, yes. I I admire her, and I oh, um, absolutely, she's but incredible. I, but I think you yeah. have to yeah. for the consequences are just so important. I think you have to have eyes. First, the Democrats I ultimately have to think Breyer, win. Yeah. I think Breyer will mm-hmm. step aside. Mm-hmm. Okay. He is very pragmatic. I certainly hope he does. Do you think uh, anybody had that conversation with her? I mean, do you think that anybody said, hey, what is said, no, yeah, maybe she was oblivious to it. I, I don't know. Yeah. She's pretty smart. <laughs> She's very smart. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, but, but was she, maybe she didn't look at it, you know, in those yeah. terms. Uh, right. She looked at the good she could do while in office. Well, I've heard, yeah, I've heard, the, I've heard yeah, other whatever fun. she had in progress in flight that she didn't want to mm-hmm. abandon. I, I don't know. It's really hard. The judge, the justices of the Supreme court get, everybody's just so incredibly deferential and respectful right. to them. It's very, yeah. and they, I think they are with each other too. Right. Confronting somebody with that. In that, you know, going up to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a legend, a sitting Supreme Court justice, and saying, Please Look, get out. <laughs> you need to resign. It's a hard thing to do. But I think people, Thanks the consequences are, are so pronounced. I think people are doing that with Breyer. And I, I think, you know, if I were, if I were President Obama, I'd have probably sent Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. To have, to, to talk to, you know, I would have, I would have done Not everything heavy. I could. Aaron, you make a great point about leaving politics aside and judge mm-hmm. 99% of the time. Speaking um, to her as a woman to woman, you know. I wish, yeah. I wish she had. Yeah. But 
What is, oh, towards the end of Obama's presidency, I, I had gotten very tired of the news and politics, and I wasn't really paying that much attention and to what was happening in the day. And I'm, I'm sorry about that, but you know, you have periods where you just, you're tired. And didn't a Supreme Court seat open up and they told Obama, it doesn't matter who you suggest, we're not going to approve. Kind of we're not even not. going to vote. Oh, Merrick Garland. Yeah. yeah. The but they, they said, yeah, they, they said they weren't even going to consider it until after the election. Attorney General Merrick Garland and Aaron, there's another example of Mitch McConnell stonewalling. They yep. uh-huh. had your left. That was horrible. I was so. Um, that, was the, that was the primary example, yeah. That was so. Uh, then, then we ended up with uh, Kavanaugh. Right of America and the president just across the board. And to just state, in fact, you know, just we're not even going to consider it, so you might as well not bother. And um, Lindsey Graham, too said at the time of the Merrick Garland thing, well, if, if this happens at the end of a Republican presidency, you know, you can throw my words back in my face. And it, it did happen. And then they pushed through uh, mm-hmm. what, Comey Barrett. Barrett. Yeah. And unfortunately, the court, in my view, have two in the Supreme Court in particular, have has too much influence. There should be more, less They should have less of an impact on American society than they do. So when you have successive Mm -hmm. things like that happen where Ginsburg doesn't retire and Garland is not even nominated, all of a sudden this body of nine lawyers, that's all it is, just nine lawyers that have all this authority over our lives, radically Mm -hmm. shifts. And and if the the structure was altered to, to, in my view, a much more a much more optimal structure where the Supreme Court didn't have so much power, these right. machinations wouldn't wouldn't be so consequential. But what Mitch, Mitch McConnell could still did, be out boofing with squee. Yeah. What Mitch McConnell did is gonna shape shape <laughs> the country for decades probably. Yeah. yeah. Somebody else can do that after him if they are so powerful and yeah, he's probably got a successor, you know, following him around like a puppy. Aaron, mm-hmm. you said you had, that there were twelve factions of the Democratic Party. Oh. I've heard it said said that Biden is a placeholder president. So I don't know like- if I've heard it said that he's a placeholder president, but he was the only one in the middle that was gonna that was gonna win nationally. I think that's mm-hmm. what that's what shook out. Yeah. All right. So what, I'm, a, I'm a Bernie guy. Yeah, I, I'm very saddened that he didn't. You know, that Trump got as much credit as he did in, in yeah. votes. Very saddened because I mean, and I have family members who voted for him twice. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. 
Well, here, this is a I'm good sorry. place to, I just, to put a know. JFK quote. Okay. The ignorance of one voter in a democracy impairs the security of all. Okay. So when you, get to the, when you go to vote, you, you should think about that. Yeah. That's a great quote. I like yeah, this. And I, and I, yeah, I do believe the, the next quote, too often we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the uh, discomfort of thought. That's a great which, JFK quote. Yeah. Yeah. Which, that, which I that, do, yeah. That's so true. Uh-huh. Go ahead, Will. I just think that that JFK quote that Lisa just read is, is great. Mm-hmm. Too often we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. And I think you, one of the reasons the tribalism is so rampant in this country is that precisely that. People are on a team. It feels good to root for their team. They interpret facts that come in as harmonious with their preconceived notions. And that just ingrains further and further their their worldview. So it's a it's a flywheel that just goes faster and faster of comfort and opinion as opposed to the discomfort of thought. It reminds me of when I decided to stop rooting for college basketball teams one year when my favorite, I hadn't really watched for a while. And my favorite teams, you know, historically were in the NCAA tournament. And I didn't know in the name of anybody on either team. I'm like, I'm rooting for laundry here, man. (laughs) I'm I'm done. (laughs) I'm one of the few UCLA grads who the entire time I was there, we, we never made the tournament. Yeah. One of the most most successful programs. Yeah. John Woodman all. And while I was there, not a, not a single tournament. I may be the only, we may be the only class. I'm not, I'm not sure. Not a single tournament. Not, not, not even the tournament. the tournament. Wow. Not even the tournament. Yeah. Mm. The absolute nader. But, but you're right though. That sports mentality, it's fantastic on Sunday afternoons. You know, you really feel good about yourself when your team wins, but when you try to apply it to something as important as, you know, the government, politics, it starts to falter if you're, yeah, if you're just so trying to. Big time. You're just, everybody's, you're just inaccurate. Like to me, if you're a citizen, I understand it. If you're a politician or a political operative, right? You want to, you want to twist everything in in one direction. But if you're a citizen of this Mm -hmm. country, isn't your only objective to be accurate and try to have a clear understanding what's going on? Like, why would you ever want to do anything that would distort your views? Like you just, you want to be accurate. That informs your participation in our democracy and when you're mm-hmm. when you're on a team and you you get too vehement in your your side accuracy goes out the window and whatever mm-hmm. happens out there in the empirical world you just interpret it in your favor but the world is going to unfold the way it's going to unfold the, mm-hmm. you know the world doesn't care if if you know the, the stock market's going to go up or down whether there's a democrat or a Repub- you know the world just doesn't care about that those things right right well, Still look at the tornadoes, whoever's in office. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it it breeds corruption also. Look at the Astros, the trash can scandal. You know, there you go. You can cheat. If you're, if you're, uh, if nationalism becomes, you know, runs, runs away, then you're more likely you're to gonna, break into the Capitol yeah, building. You're more apt to do something. <laughs> yes. Not yeah. a lot of clear thing. Not a lot of a discomfort of thought in the mob <laughs> that stormed the Capitol. Right. Uh, oh man, I just watched that. The, the, I watched the HBO special on that the other night. That was unbelievable. I didn't realize there is an HBO special. 
Yeah, yeah it's it, fairly new. It's all cell phones and, and stuff. Yeah. But, uh, and but uh, what was it? The, the thing yeah, that's interesting to watch, me, but man, it seems like it was about the three hours it took Trump to respond at all. Oh yeah, and and what happened after he responded? Well, yeah, he he finally at like four o'clock or something, you know, after the. the the, you Most know, after it. the fact, he he came out and said, "Uh, please uh, put down you know, your weapons and go home, or put down you know, whatever go home or whatever." And it, and yeah. and there instantly, face, instantly, there were people that said, "Okay, he said to stop." You know, yeah. Some of the key figures in this in this uh, mm-hmm. thing. All right. Well, another JFK quote just on this theme, the famous one that that you included here, Phil. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Yeah, that's one of the big problems that I see sort of centrally running through our politics right now is that it's almost not even a consideration anymore among a big group of politicians in office and and their supporters of what's what's best for the country. Exactly. That's it's me, me, me. It's it's really focused on the next victory, the next immediate thing, the next election, the raising money, beating the other side. And, and it just seems to me back in the the JFK era, there was certainly there was fierce politics, no doubt about it, but there was a fair amount of overlap that was just left alone. And every, okay, it's in the interest of the country for us to agree on these core things. We'll, we'll haggle outside of that core area of overlap. Mm. Now it's just, a zero sum political sport. Do you all agree with that? And have you seen it? Does this seem like the worst it's been in terms of that dynamic? Or I like I like the phrase zero sum political sport. <laughs> that does kind of sum it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. It's kind of like ADD on steroids. You know? But I mean, <laughs> how much of this is? How much of it is maybe even directed? How much of it is the dog is wagging the dog? Would you think? Would you think? Have you ever seen the movie Wag the Dog? If you haven't, it's excellent. Okay. If nothing else, it's Pacino. Okay. But basically, what it is is uh, this big political problem shows up, and what they do is they hire this guy that basically his entire career is look over there. Yeah, you know, and thing. he creates an entire situation to distract the country from the situation that's going on. And they call that wagging the dog. Well, I think that's what your and Fox News is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Tweeting from uh, Fox News doesn't even have the dog. It's just got the tail on a little on yeah. a little flagpole um, to me. I think but, I, I but think how much of that. the, the big huge. companies that now basically own Congress? are wagging the dog in some ways by, if not, I mean, how, okay, like like some of the more insane people that have been elected to office recently, you know, how much of that could be, look over there? I think it's a great point. There's a lot of that. I think there's conscious efforts to distract and divert people from things that matter. And then I also think there's inherent in, the media ecosystem is a focus on flashy attention grabbing negative things and then big really important but slower moving things get ignored even though they're much more important um and yeah i, th- I think diverting attention 
and, and just having misfocus is a huge part of why we are where we are. Yeah. Kind of a greasy wheel kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Yes. Thank you for giving us so much. Blame of everything on the caravan coming up through Mexico. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huge, huge all fix all our problems. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we were <laughs> didn't pigeonhole you too much and wanted to talk about JFK, but I feel like t- kind of all tied together and we got into a discussion about contemporary uh, affairs. Absolutely. I thought, it, yeah. I thought it was great. And it, we focused on, on JFK more in the beginning and then, like you said, Phil tied it all together in a really nice way. And it was uh, a lot of fun. And I really appreciate you letting me join, join the show. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Great. All right. Mm-hmm. We'll have a great weekend. Good to see everybody. And right. um, I can't wait to see you. Listen. We'll All let right. you know when it posts. Thank you. Yep. Take mm-hmm. care. Bye. Bye. But the educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. He knows that knowledge is power, more so today than ever before. He knows that only an educated and informed people will be a free people. That the ignorance of one voter in a democracy impairs the security of all. Hey listeners, it's Lisa and Phil from Yeah Uh Uh-huh. How are we doing? We love feedback. Please use our socials to let us know what you think. We have socials. Twitter. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Instagram. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Facebook. Yeah, uh-huh, pod. Notice, Notice a pattern. pattern. Website. www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week.